welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to cross over today to Scottsdale, Arizona in the United States to catch up with fellow YPOR and industry veteran, Steve Patterson. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks, Marcus. Great to be here with you. I think I have as many notes as I've ever had for anyone uh, for a podcast. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, you know, obviously uh, correct because we're going to be covering nearly 40 years of your career here. Uh, so there's tons to unpack. Uh, and I'm certain there will be amazing stories across the board from all the things you've done. Um, now, for some folks who might not have heard of you, let me just sort of do just a short intro here. And uh, again, we'll go obviously much deeper into all of it. But, uh, you know, your career started with the Houston Rockets. Um, you spent many years there, all the way helping them build the championship team and, and winning the, the championship. You've been uh, around the NFL um, teams. You've been in ice hockey. Uh, you've helped build arenas. And of course, uh, now running also your own business. Business, um, consulting in, in all sorts of areas uh, in the team management, uh, work with universities, top NCAA universities in the U.S., etc. So uh, we're going to be unpacking all of that. As I said, there is tons of stories and amazing uh, things you've done here. And we're going to try as hard as we can to keep this all in a reasonable time frame because uh, – Again, someone with your CV, uh, you know, we could talk hours and hours about it. So, but let's let's get right in there. How it all started. You are a Longhorn. You studied at the University of Texas um, and came out with a law degree there in in 18, 1984, right? A long time ago, and landed then your first job with the Houston Rockets. Take us back there and and just you know talk a bit about it. Yeah, my family had been in the professional sports business. My my dad actually started, he founded the Milwaukee Bucks in the late 60s and actually started uh, answering the phone for the team when it first started before we had any furniture when I was 10 years old. So <laughs> I love it. He, he, he was running the Rockets at the time, and um, the industry was really changing. It was moving from sort of mom-and-pop operations to – you know, more big business. And so David Stern came into the league as the commissioner, um, put together the labor agreement that had a salary cap. And um, so you had to have a real different mindset about player contracts and negotiating those. You know, the media industry was changing. Cable uh, television was just getting off the ground. So we were one of the first teams that uh, had a regional sports deal on a, on a regional sports network, uh, HSE it was called at the time. Um, data was, computers were just kind of moving off of mainframes onto PCs. And so the industry was changing and the skill sets that were needed were very different and the sizes of the um, front offices were starting to change. I mean, when I started at the Rockets, we had, we had nine people in the front office. Right. And, uh, you know, now there's over 400 at most NBA teams. Right. Um, so the skill set of being able to, you know, build our own um, software network to do ticketing and, and be able to uh, manage contracts and, you know, look at the changing demographics of a city like Houston. Houston's the most diverse city in the United States. And, you know, trying to see where the 
Spanish-speaking language uh, uh, members of the community were were growing. You know, in those days it was eight or nine percent. Today it's more like forty percent. You know, we wanted to get in front of that wave. So a lot of those skill sets were needed that hadn't been needed before. So it was exciting to to join the franchise. Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess I, I introduced you the wrong way, right? You've been around then for 50 years since you started at 10 answering the phone there, as you mentioned. It, yeah, it is, it is actually true. I, mean, I did go to school. It goes all the way like back there. there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that was a real different world. when the, I mean, the marketing campaign was see the bucks for a buck. That's how cheap the tickets were and how, wow. unimagin how unimaginative the marketing was. And I can remember the guy that was on the picture of the first newspaper ads. And in those days, there was two papers in Milwaukee. And, and uh, had a picture of this player, and it said, uh, this fall, this man will play his heart out for you. You know, get buck season tickets. And you're supposed to like, cut off the bottom of the of the newspaper ad and send in a check, right? It's a little different today. He was the first guy that got cut in training camp. Right. So, <laughs> it didn't work out too well. Now, now before we get, go further into, into your amazing career, I'd, I'd love to just, just tell us a little story about your dad. You know, I mean, again, there was another whole era be, before that. How, how did he get into the world of, of basketball or, or sports in general? And, and you know, just, just give us a short one on that. Sure, yeah. He, he had been, he went to the University of uh, Wisconsin. Uh, was an All-American basketball player back in the, in the 40s. Uh, played against guys like George Mikan that are in the uh, Hall of Fame. Um, he got out and coached and wound up being headmaster of a school. The person that was um, in charge of the investment for the school and also my father's uh, broker led the Milwaukee Bucks effort to go public. It was very easy to go public in those days. Right. And so my, both my father and the school were invested in the Bucks when they were going public. And uh, Al McGuire was the basketball coach at Marquette, a very successful collegiate basketball coach at the time, uh, wound up winning an NCAA championship there. And, and at the last minute, the day before they were going public, uh, Marquette University would not let him out of his contract. And so there was this all night meeting and the only guy there that knew anything about basketball because he'd been a, a collegiate player, and he played in the old pro leagues, the NBL, that uh, got merged with the BAA and became the NBA many years ago. The only guy knew anything about basketball was my dad, so they that, prevailed right? upon him to be, to, to be the president. He said, well, I'll do it for a year, and then i got to go back to uh, – I'll keep my job running the prep school, Whalen Academy is running at the time, but then i got to go back, and uh, so you got to find somebody else. Well, they hired a guy to be the GM. He decided to run for the Senate. Um, so my father took over to the GM duties as well. They wound up uh, drafting Lou Alcindor, who changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, one of the all-time great players in the history of the NBA, and right. still the top, the top scorer in the, in the history of the league. Right. And they won, they, they won the championship, and he decided to stick around and give up the, give up the school business. It, it, it was too much fun, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, when you win it 62 out of 82 games every year, it's that's yeah, amazing. That's a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun. I love that. I love that. Um, but and then then how did he end up at, at Houston at the Houston Rockets then? You know, he he got frustrated in Milwaukee because we needed a new arena back then. This was in the early 70s, and the building at that time was I think 40, 50 years old. Couldn't get it done. And in Houston, there was a team that had just moved from San Diego. Started out as the San Diego Rockets. Moved to Houston and a bunch of uh, 
folks in the oil and gas industry and, and uh, real estate were the owners. And uh, they asked him to come down there and run it, told him he'd get to a new arena right away. And so he sold his shares in the Bucks and, and went. we moved to Houston. And it was a bit of a culture shock, I got to say. <laughs> right. uh, if you ever been to Houston, moving to Houston in August in uh, 98 degrees and 98% humidity with a with a rodeo rink on the on the school grounds, that's a that's a bit of a culture change from uh, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. What a great way to start. So obviously, you did follow in your father's footstep uh, in you know in many ways. Uh, you spent ten years with the Rockets, or nearly ten years. Um, you know, all the way at the end, being the general manager there of the team. So let, let's talk about that. Let's spend a bit of time um, in the in that decade you were there. Um, how it all started, and you know, again, just looking at some of the bullets, uh, you know, on your CV here, obviously you guys broke, you know, high, you know, attendant records uh, for the NBA. You, you know, brought the first Spanish language television show together. Um, you know, highest season tickets average, and all those things. I mean, there's you know, tons of things here, um, including I think the first NBA game to Mexico City. So let's talk some of those things here before we get to you know maybe how you built that championship team there. You know, tell us about the fun stories of your Houston Rocket days. Yeah, I mean, I, I started on the business side. And as I said, it was a period when the business was really changing. And so there was no automation of the ticket industry, for instance. It was, it was uh, in terms of season tickets, everything was done manually on cards. And literally, you'd take a check or even take a credit card. And when you took the credit card, you had to run the little carbon copy Right. Uh, of it. And then you had to manually record all that on a season ticket holder's card and then manually uh, have the tickets printed and delivered. And if somebody had a mini season ticket, you had to take out the games they didn't have and send them the games they did have and then put the other tickets back on the system, either Ticketron or, or Ticketmaster at that time. Ticketmaster is still around. Ticketron is rebranded as Pacquiolan. And so it's very labor intensive and difficult to manage and difficult to know just where you were. And so we created the first built for a team specific software for season tickets. Right. And at that time, Compact Computers was headquartered in Houston and uh, we did it all on PCs. And you know, so we were able with a small staff compared to other people to really manage a major growth in the season tickets. And so even though we went through a period in Houston where the savings and loan industry crashed and we had what we called see-through buildings in Houston. See-throughs were, were buildings that the shell was up and the glass was on, but there was nothing on any of the floors because oh. they were all empty. Right. Because okay. all the so, so many companies had gone out of business. And right. so right. You know, we, we maintained the largest season ticket base for uh, you know the last half of the 80s even through the uh, economic downturn. You know, we, we, we looked at it, saw that the Spanish population was growing. And so, you know, got together with, um, people thought we were crazy at the time, but literally broadcast every game on radio, mm -hmm. um, made money at it, you know, never lost any money at it, had a weekly television show in Spanish. You know, as I said, at the beginning, in the mid 80s, when we started, you know, the Spanish speaking population in Houston was you know, probably, it was in the single digits, you know, six, eight percent. Right. Today, it's over 40 percent. Right. So, you know, we got ahead of that curve. And so a natural extension of that was, OK, well, 
Yeah. How did, and, did, and, you, and, did you, let's say, you know, I mean, in, in hindsight, it's all easy to say, but uh, did you see that uh, coming or how did you, you know, see the diversity coming in there already? You know, that's a big word now. Uh, it probably wasn't a word in the 80s necessarily. Um, yeah. You know, how did you see that um, and, and started targeting that audience? You know, we, we, hit, we, hit, we specifically targeted the African-American community with, um, you know, the radio stations and, and TV stations and promotions that uh, would help us sell in that uh, demographic. You know, we targeted the, the white folks, uh, suburban and urban, you know, in all economic groups. And we realized, you know, after a few years that, uh, okay, we've sort of done everything we can do with those demographics, but we're kind of ignoring another demographic. Right. And and so, you know, if you're going to approach that demographic, certainly language is an important part of it, right? right. And making it accessible. And so we made a concerted effort and, and we saw it. We saw a reaction in terms of tickets sold. We saw a reaction in terms of merchandise purchase. We saw a reaction in viewership and listenership. You know, lots of people would turn, watch the game on TV and turn on the Spanish language broadcast so they could listen to it in Spanish. And so as we looked at it, we went, well, a natural extension of this is, you know, just an hour's flight south of Houston, an hour and a half, is the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, if you look back at sort of the 500 years, 600 years uh, back to the 1400s and even, you know, before that in terms of the Native American populations, Mexico City has always been the most important city in the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And... And so Guns N' Roses came through the band, and they were the biggest band out there right. at the time. And they played Houston, and we sold 12,500 tickets. People laugh at this. At 20 bucks a, top, a, a ticket. And that, that, that was the biggest gross, $250,000, that the building had ever seen. Right. Uh, they went down to Mexico City uh, two nights later, did two nights, did 20,000 a night at 50 bucks a ticket. Wow. And so, yeah, wow, right? That's what I said, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it, didn't take, it didn't take a genius to go, there's something going on here we need to like pay attention to. Right. And so Frank Sinatra came through a few nights later on one of his last tours and the same thing, he'd gone to Mexico City first, the same story. Right. And so I got, I got a hold of Doug Lowe. Yeah, there's money there. And, and you know, it's a big, big pyramid. The people at the top are very wealthy, right. and you know they they crave great entertainment, and so I got a hold of Doug Logan, a fellow who later became the MLS commissioner and became the uh, head of uh, USA Track and Field for the Olympics. He was running the building for a company named Ogden at the time, a U.S.-based company, mm -hmm. and we put together a deal and went down there, and the gross was twice what we would have done for a preseason game in Houston. And then the next year we put together the deal and we had a four-team tournament. We went, first year we went with Dallas and they liked the idea too because they recognized what was going on. Hmm. And then it became a multi-night uh, four-team tournament where we flipped teams the second night and sold out 20,000 each night. And you know, all of a sudden the NBA woke up. And I can remember Gary Bettman, who later became, who was number two at the NBA at the time, and later became the commissioner of the NHL. And he called me up and chewed me out for doing this. And said, don't you, 
don't you know you don't have the right to go, you know, out of the country to uh, arrange preseason games? I was just say that. That. I thought it was the NBA who does controls all that, but I guess not at those days, right? Not at that time. And I said, but, you know, Gary, show me, show me the document. You know, like I'm not going to break league rules, but I don't see any rule anywhere. Yeah, you can't do it. What do you mean I can't do it? I already got a contract. Uh, and he said, well, why the hell do you want to go there? I said, Gary, you got to understand something. There's a great big country out here, you know, yeah, beyond the Hudson course. River, because the guy was so focused on New York. Right. And I said, what, yeah. you, what you don't understand is Mexico City is closer to me than, you are. than, three, mm-hmm. out, than three out of four teams in my own division, yeah. let alone New York. I mean, it, it was closer than trying to go play Seattle or Denver or you know, San Francisco or any you know, Oakland or, or L.A., um, so it made a lot of sense. And so all of a sudden we became the NBA's team in Mexico city. Hmm. There were nine daily papers. And so, you know, we were getting the, uh, we were number one NBA story on every daily in Mexico city all year round. We saw fans coming. And later when I got to the Texans, because we'd started to build a lot of that, uh, relationship between the Houston sports teams and, um, and Mexico city and folks that had money in Mexico city, we wound up uh, selling 15% of our seats at the Houston Texans, excuse me, suites Sweet. at the Houston Texans to people from Mexico City. Right, right. Yeah, I love it. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And that's why I love these stories because, you know, there, there's always in these history things, there's history repeats itself, right? And, and there's tons of learnings, I'm sure, for others, even in today's environment. Uh, it, it doesn't matter which part of the world you're in, you know, there are always those neighbors around you. Uh, which you should look at. So uh, it's a great story. I love this. And, you know, and I just want to, you know, a couple more things here on, on Houston before we, of course, move on there. Uh, even though we could probably spend a whole hour just talking about them. Uh, you know, again, TV deals at that time, obviously, we're talking completely different numbers. And I, and I love your, your CV it has yeah. a lot of numbers in there. So I'm going to, I love, it'll be throwing this out because it gives a sense and scale of right here. I think you're mentioning that you, you negotiated the most lucrative TV contract at that time for the club. Um, and it was about $18 million for five years. Now, is that 18 per yeah. year or 18 for the whole five? 18 for the whole five. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, that's how much it's changed. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I can remember the first time we had a hundred thousand dollar gross, and I can remember the first time we had a million dollar gross. Right. You know, and it, it was. I mean, it's it's changed dramatically. I mean, now you're I don't know four, five, six million bucks a night yeah. in these arenas. Correct. Now, again, let's uh, just, just a quick one. Stick to that for a minute. Um, obviously, the NBA has you know has has a complex structure in the U.S. like most of the American leagues, right, where the teams can do yeah. certain things themselves, and then of course there is the league deals. So in this case, this was a deal for your part of the the country, or or how would that how would that deal structured? Yeah, so NBA teams have a seventy five mile um, radius right. Uh, right. Home, home territory, and uh, inside that you get your media rights and the dollars from that, and you control it. Outside of that, you have to share with the league right. and with the other teams, and and you're right. After we did those two, the second Mexico City. Uh, deal. They took it away from us. It, it, the NBA took it away from us, and because uh, they didn't want teams going off and doing that. Right. Right. So okay. So that that deal that we're talking, which is now the eighty million, that was then for your 
whatever re- radius of 75 miles or whatever um, around the stadium, yeah. so to speak, right? Um, yes. So it's a it's a yeah. local city deal, city TV deal, or whatever we want to call it, right? Yeah, cool. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Makes makes sense. Now let let's talk a bit about how you then ended up building the championship team at the 1993-94 NBA champion with Hakeem Olajuwon, obviously as the sort of star player. Uh, to check a bit around, I have to admit I didn't quite recognize so much the other players there, but clearly Olajuwon obviously was a superstar there. You know, talk a bit about it. Um, how it, you know, taking a team from, you know, I think you they made the finals in '81, '86. Um, so you didn't win it um, to then, you know, finally getting the getting that big trophy. Yeah, um, the '86 team we had in the two previous drafts drafted Ralph Sampson and Akeem Olajuwon. It was a young team, great point guard and John Lucas. The Twin Towers were what the Samson Olajuwon were called by the media. And we got to six games um, against Boston in the finals. We probably were too young to get there, uh, not really mature enough. And it was a great Boston series. And, you know, Bob Ryan, the, the beat writer for the Celtics for 30 years, said it was uh, game six was the best game he ever saw in all the years he watched Celtics basketball. You know, they were a veteran team, and and Bill Walton uh, came off the bench and, uh, you know, really helped them get over the hump. Immediately after that, the league was in the midst of a problem with a lot of guys using drugs, in particular cocaine, and we lost three of our first six players. Wow. And then Sampson got hurt, um, came back, he really was not going to be the same player he was. And we made the decision literally in the middle of a game to trade him. And so I remember being with my father and, and the owner, Charlie Thomas at the time, the majority owner, and Don Nelson at Golden State uh, up in San Francisco had always been interested in Samson. And so uh, my, we called him up literally at halftime and told him that uh, – Ralph and Fitch, the coach, Ralph Sampson and Bill Fitch, the coach, had literally gotten into a fight at halftime. And if you want to make your best deal right now. And we agreed to the terms, and then you have to have a follow-up call with the league um, to go over all the details of the contracts. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we had to do that the next night. We, did, we, got, we worked through the night and into the next day and up till that night and literally did the trade in the middle of a concert in, in the arena. And uh, the name of the band was Def Leppard. I don't right. remember. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so because it was so loud in our arena, we kept making the people in the league office and the people in San Francisco and all the lawyers on the call, on this conference call, repeat everything. And finally, <laughs> finally, finally, Nelly goes, Jesus, Patterson, what's the problem over there in Houston? Why can't you guys hear? And I said, it's Def Leppard, man. I mean, what do you want me to do about it? He goes, is that what you call your old man? Because <laughs> he sure seems deaf. <laughs> I said, no, Nelly, it's a rock band. You know, you never heard of Def Leppard? Well, they were huge at the time. And, uh, so we finally got it done. You know, it should have taken 25 minutes. Think about two hours because nobody could hear anything. <laughs> and that's funny. And then, so we had to rebuild the roster. And so I did that. Uh Traded for uh, Otis Thorpe and drafted Robert Ory and drafted Sam Cassell and 
uh, traded for Scotty Brooks, you know, and uh, my approach was kind of different than a lot of guys. A lot of guys that came out of basketball looked at their rosters purely from the basketball side. They couldn't figure out how to make the cap work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Having been a lawyer and spent so much time on the contracts and the salary cap, I looked at it the other way around. You know, I, I knew I had, you know, so much money to work with under the cap or so much if I moved a player on a deal. And how can I maximize our position and maximize the assets of the franchise right. in the deal to build to build a winning team? And, um, you know, Akeem got frustrated at times. He always wanted to retrade his contract every, uh, you know, every six or eight months. And uh, but after our trip to uh, our opening trip to Japan, he and Charlie got it worked out and we got Kenny Smith and a couple other guys and we put together a team that, that won it all. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Now, just a question here. Um, as a GM, obviously you're, you're talking about, you know, a lot of the player acquisition and, and all that trading is, is part of your role. How does that work with a coach? I mean, uh, you know, in, in, in general, maybe not just for your team, um, you know, who really picks who's on the roster and is it the GM's role or the coach or is it a combo of it? You know, it varies by team. And so, you know, you may Somebody who's the general manager or president of basketball operations or, you know, if it's football or baseball, what have you, those roles vary considerably from team to team. My view always has been somebody's got to have the franchise's view in mind. And that view may be and usually is more long term than the coaches. Coach has right. to win tonight and tomorrow and the next night. Okay. If he doesn't win, he's going to get fired. Right. The. The general manager, on the other hand, has got to manage the cap. He's got to manage the cash. He's got to manage what's in the long-term interest of the franchise versus the very short-term uh, interest of the coach and what's happening tomorrow night. So, you know, my view is the best structure is that the coach will coach the team. The general manager acquires the talent. You're going to want to work with your coach very closely and have those conversations, and he certainly should have input. Right. But – You know, the coach, if he's doing his job, is busy with the team that he's got there every day. He's not out on the road scouting college players. He's not out on the road scouting foreign players. He's not out on the road looking at what's going on with other teams. He doesn't know the financial constraints that a team may have. Um, he doesn't know the cap problems that a team may have. Hmm. You know, that's the general manager's role. And if and if you're not doing that 24-7, You're not going to be very good at it. Yeah, makes total sense. Well, that, now I got it. <laughs> uh, because then, you know, I'm comparing a bit to the to to the Premier League or other, you know, say football leagues around the yeah. world, where clearly coaches have a huge say in it. Um, and, you know, and maybe it's not as obvious there as well that I guess whatever they call them there, managing directors or others, CEOs of these teams uh, have a similar role to play. So that's interesting. I, I like that. Now. Uh, somehow, if, if I recall it, and, and while we're moving on, that sort of to, to your next stop here, but um, there was a, was a new owner who came in. Uh, I think just around the time when the team was uh, in the process of winning this championship, uh, and you sort of left. I think halfway through it, and so unfortunately, it sounds like you might not even gotten the ring there. Uh, just just share that with us a bit. I, I, did, I did get a ring. Oh, you yeah, did. Okay, uh, great. I'm glad to hear yeah, that. Yeah, uh, I've got you know a, a few rings. Um, You know, the team got sold. Uh, my view is this is a small industry, you know, even setting aside 
the sm much smallerness of a league. But, you know, the sports industry is not that big. I mean, there's, what, 125, 150 teams in the United States. If you take all the leagues, combine them together, you know, a few hundred employees at each team. And so my view is you're going to see people again in this industry. Right. So you better treat them appropriately. Uh, my view always has been that your word has to be your bond. And, you know, others have a different perspective. You know, Les Alexander was somebody who had a very different perspective. He never saw a contract uh, that he didn't want to break. Um, right. And, you know, my father and I had run the Rockets for, you know, what, 20-something years. And you develop uh, relationships in a community, and people know your a handshake is good. Yep. You know, you're, you know the, the letter of intent is good. So, you know, less than I didn't see eye to eye. And when the owner doesn't see eye to eye with the president, you know, it's not the owner that's going to leave. It's going to be the president. Sure. And, uh, you know, so that was fine. Um, uh, that's certainly his perspective. He, and he's certainly got the right as the owner of the franchise, uh, you know, to have who he wants to have as the coach or the GM or anybody else in the organization. I think, you know, fans sometimes get uptight about, you know, is the owner meddling? Well, the guy owns the team, for Christ's right. sake. Right. Absolutely. Like, he company. writes the checks yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, he, sure. he can decide what he wants to do. Yeah, well, that makes sense. No, no, interesting. And look, let's uh, – yeah, great. That was a really interesting uh, sort of talking about your first 10 years here. And now I want to look at the next 10. So we're talking 93 sure. to, you know, 203. Um, and there are really two, I guess, two or three sort of stops, which we, we will we'll touch on and highlight. And the first one was, um, again, you stick, stuck around Houston um, and you, you ended up working in the or becoming the governor, president and partner in the in an NHL, sorry, no, in, not in NHL, uh, in an ice hockey team, but in the IHL, which I had to look up actually what it was to have to admit. <laughs> it's called the International yeah. Hockey League. Right. So uh, tell us a bit about that. Well, you know, it was actually kind of funny because uh, <clears throat> Glenn Hart, who was the lead owner, then Chuck Watson became that. I'd been talking to him um, uh, about him his desire to bring a team to Houston and play in the in the Compact Center. Um, and so the day after I left the the uh, Rockets, he calls me up. He says, "Well, you know, I need a president of this team, and uh, you know, I want to make a deal with you. I want you to be a partner. We'll give you equity in this thing." And uh, Let's put this together. And so it's like, well, I don't have to move and, you know, yeah. money's good and be a partner. And, and so we uh, acquired the team and, and um, we built uh, ice rinks in Houston to uh, grow the game of hockey. And right after we did that deal, Kenneth Schnitzer, who owned the arena operating company, was deciding to uh, sell his real estate interest in uh, – Greenway Plaza, which is a large real estate development office, towers, hotels, condos and whatnot around the compact center right. and um, and sell his interest potentially in arena operating company. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, so I heard about that on a Friday at breakfast uh, with one of his partners that uh, the video production company that was there called Kenneth at 10 o'clock found out what he wanted for arena operating company, called Chuck Watson and Glenn Hart and said, look, we don't have to be um, anybody's tenants. We can be our own tenant. 
and we can buy Arena Operating Company. And oh, by the way, the Rockets will be our tenant. All right. All right. <laughs> um, nice. Uh, and this is how much it'll be. And they both looked at each other and went, done. Call Kenneth and tell him it's done. Well, like call them and we had a letter of intent, like a two-page letter of intent by five o'clock Friday afternoon that we that we signed and then went and uh, you know went to the final documents after that. Um, funny thing was we knew we were gonna get sued by Les Alexander because you know he, he was breaking every contract he could, sponsors and everybody else. Um, and he wanted to get out of the lease at the summit. So um, as soon as we got done papering the deal to buy Arena Operating Company, I called Dennis Bram, who was the attorney on the other side of this deal. And I said, uh, you know, Dennis, as you know, we're the new owners of Arena Operating Company. He goes, yeah, I, I, I know. We, we just finished the deal. He says, you're probably going to want to decide who your attorneys are going to be, particularly because you're going to be in a lawsuit with the Rockets who want out. I said, yeah, we've already decided. It's you. All right. <laughs> and, and he said, well, what do you mean, Steve? I said, well, I figure we're going to be in front of a judge shortly, and we're going to be asked to interpret the contract. And the judge is going to say, who represented the Rockets in this deal? And you're going to stand there, and you're going to point at me. And then he's going to say, well, who represented Arena Operating Company on this? And I'm going to turn around and point at you. And so if there's any question about what this document means, it's both of us on this side of the, of the courtroom, not those guys on that side of the courtroom that represent the Rockets. So uh, it worked out very well for us. I love it. <laughs> now, uh, again, I'm not sure you can share. Well, give me some numbers here. Um, what did the arena cost uh, or, you know, and the ice hockey team, which you mentioned earlier, you bought? Just, just Are there some numbers you can share? Yeah, I think we bought that team for uh, $5 million, $4 or $5 million, and it probably cost us $2 million in startup costs. Right to get it up and running, right. and you know we probably did in revenue, we did between seven to ten million dollars a year over the years. You know the arena, we probably bought for ten or twelve million dollars back then, wow. and that gave us the rights to run it for uh, uh, I think it was twelve years, and we were netting when I got there about a million and a half, and we got it up to about. Five million bucks by the time, by the time it was maybe so, six so million. So you say bucks you had the time. rights then to run for 10, 12 years. So it wasn't a, you, so it was like a lease you purchase. Is that how it worked? Or uh, the, yeah, the the city actually owned the building because ah, right. okay. we, we didn't we didn't want to pay the property taxes. Right, right, okay. On it, and so at the end of the term of when the bonds were paid off, then the building operation, uh, uh, the contract with our company terminated and the operation went back to the city, they wound up cutting a deal with a guy named Joel Olstein, who's uh, one of these uh, megachurch uh, televangelists. Right. Put 70 million bucks in it and packs the place a couple, three nights a week with, uh, you know, if you ever see, he's on TV all over yeah, the world. Yeah, I've I, 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 yeah, sort of seen, maybe not him, but I know what you're talking about. Interesting. Now, I think you you, you did negotiate then the, the deal with Compact, right? That was part of yes. uh, when you guys took over, right? So, and yeah. again, uh, there's a number here, as I have in your CV, is uh, six years, 7.5 million. Is that 7.5 a year or for the six years? Oh. That was for the six. For the six. Um, well, okay. That's how small it was. And, and that, 
you know, basically we wanted to uh, renovate the building and uh, we took all that money and upgraded the building for the last uh, six years that we were in there. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. And again, this is why I love these because, you know, again, we're in the sort of late 90s here. You know, now a $7.5 million deal for an arena naming rights per year would be a small deal, right? At that time, it was for five or six years in this sense, right? So uh, yeah, good yeah. stuff. That's, that's really interesting. Now, you ended up then uh, selling the team eventually uh, before you moved on or what happened to the, 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 the hockey team? The hockey team stayed there. Um uh, and moved actually after the end of the term of the compact center into the new building downtown. Um, and then Chuck sold it to the owners of the Dallas stars. Okay. Um, and, uh, it relocated to, uh, outside Austin in Cedar park. It's, it's the stars affiliate. affiliate um, team. okay. And, so while we were while we were in the mid 90s 95 96 the NHL was expanding and so we went after a franchise uh Chuck Watson and Bob McNair we got right down to the end to get an NHL team for Houston and uh we had the NHL board of governors the owners all there in the conference room in the summit compact center and we had a letter agreement from from the mayor, signed by the mayor. And he, in the meeting, backed out of the deal. All right. And I never, I mean, two of the best guys I've ever seen in a boardroom are Bob McNair and Chuck Watson. I mean, they, that's a real executive skill, uh, you know, knowing how to handle a boardroom well. Mm-hmm. And they're both very good at it. And I, I never saw the two of them so drop-jawed, didn't know what to say next. Little Gary Bettman, you know, tough New York lawyer, drags the mayor, who's this big old Texan, literally with a cowboy hat, cowboy boots. He's about 6'6 and weighs about 275. You know, Depression-era kid that grew up and became worth several hundred million dollars and ran the city of Houston like he was the emperor. They went out in the hallway. Boy, I mean, you you can't print any of the words in a family newspaper that went back and forth between the two of them and, Little five foot two Gary Bettman screaming and poking Bob Lanier in the chest was quite a scene. <laughs> wow, interesting! <laughs> I love that. Now let's so, let, so then we so then we pivoted from there and went after the the Texans after the NHL. Yeah, exactly. NFL. That that's a perfect segue then because obviously you you then did go into the NFL into American football, um, and you helped bring the team to Houston, right? From if I realize right. correctly here, right? And you build everything yeah. from the you know, the, the new stadium to the whole thing. So let, let's get a bit in there because again these numbers I see here are just insanely large. Uh in terms of, you know, the venue was over four hundred million dollars um to build. But at the same time, you know, you brought in massive deals, naming rights deals. Uh, the, the suite contracts are all in the hundreds of millions. And so let, let's go a little bit step by step here uh, before before I jump too far ahead. So, so how did you then end up, you know, getting involved in in bringing uh, an NFL team to Houston? Right. So, so Chuck Watson, who was our my partner in the Arrows, um, was partners agreed to be partners with Bob McNair. In, and, and Bob was going to be a partner had we gotten the NHL. And so we 
We didn't get the NHL because the mayor pulled out of the arena deal. And so we pivoted and went after the NFL. Uh, Bob and Chuck asked me to lead that effort. So I agreed to do that, left the arrows. And uh, we were competing with the Los Angeles for a team. And the league really Mm -hmm. wanted to go to LA. Uh, They wanted the size of the media market for the NFL. And so, you know, it was a it was a heated um, competition. We hit, we we partnered with the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, which is the largest consecutive night entertainment event on the planet. It's uh, put two and a half million people through the doors in wow. in 21 days, mm-hmm. and so that allowed us to sort of wrap ourselves. And it's a large the largest philanthropy in Houston, so it allowed us to sort of wrap ourselves in the flag of doing what's good for the community and the kids, as opposed to, uh, you know, sucking down a lot of public money for billionaires and millionaires. And um, we got legislation passed to help fund public sports facilities in Texas. I worked on that, got that done at Texas legislature, largely on the back of Bob McNair's 30 plus years of uh, being a significant political donor in the state of Texas and never asking for anything. We got the city involved, we got the county involved, we got Metro, which was the uh, mass transit uh, entity involved to run mass transit to the site. And we kept this coalition together for two and a half, three years through the process, uh, including a period of time when the NFL literally gave uh, an exclusive for six months to LA to, uh, to put a deal together. Okay. And I can remember flying back on Bob's plane and he was having a scotch and he said, you know, don't worry about it, Steve. These guys have tried to build a building in Los Angeles for 30 years and they haven't been able to do it yet. Six more (laughs) months ain't going to fix it for them. So (laughs) sure enough, uh, about five months later, uh, the league called us and Paul Tagliabue was the commissioner, asked us to come to New York. So we go up and we present where we are with what our plan is. And all this time, Bob had kept spending money on architects. Right. So just in terms of purely building a building, we were a year and a half ahead of Los Angeles because right. we had the site and we had the architectural drawings done. Right. And they would have had to do that in Los Angeles. And, you know, so we present all our stuff and finally Tagley Booth says, Bob, let's you and I go talk. And, um, so they they understood we had our act together. Mm. Now it's time to talk price. And when we started, we thought it would be 250 million bucks. Then a couple of teams got to see uh, Minnesota got sold for like 275 and uh, Cleveland was in a previous expansion. It went for like 300 or something. So we started figuring, okay, maybe it's going to be 350. Bob comes back. It comes out of the meeting with, with Tagliabue, and he was white as a sheet. And he just looked at us and said, let's go. So we, all the rest of us are looking at each other, the lawyers, the architects, the county, and the city. And, um, you know, everybody knew what had happened and didn't want to broach the subject. So we go out to Teterboro, and we hop on the plane, and we're flying back. And we kind of let Bob just have a, have a cocktail to calm down. I finally said, okay, Bob, how much? What was the number? Yeah. $750 million. 
Wow. Which, yeah, at the time in, you know, late 90s, and compared to everything else, we were drop-jawed. And uh, I said, okay, so we're not going to talk about what you want to do. Let's just have dinner on the plane, fly back, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. So we did that, and we talked the next day, and I called him up, and I said, you know, here's the deal, Bob. You know, you're planning your whatever he was, 60-something years old at the time. And, you know, you're planning when you're done. You've made, you know, billions of dollars in the cogen business. And you told me about how you want to leave a legacy and all the money you're going to give to charity and, you know, what you're going to give your kids. And, you know, the largest legacy you can leave for the city of Houston, if that's what you want to do. And he had led all the major campaigns for all the museums and the hospitals and, you know, United Way and everything. Largest legacy you can leave is this franchise. Right. It'll have a larger economic impact, a larger social impact, a larger media impact than anything you can want. And I know 750 million bucks is a lot of money, but if we can name the terms and you have enough partners, which you think you're going to have, is it going to change your lifestyle at all? He says, no, it's not going to change my lifestyle. Right. I said, so you're going to be able to do tomorrow and the next day and 10 years from now, exactly what you're doing today. Yep, that's right. Well, and all I can tell you is, if you want to leave a legacy, buy the damn franchise. Thing. Wow. Nice. And I, he did. I like that. I like that speech. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nice it was one. a very sort of emotional moment for the two of us. Of and uh, you know, and he and he committed, and you know, he was tens of millions of dollars into it. You know, which would in today's money be I don't know fifty or hundred million bucks. Yeah, it, was, it was over. This is twenty three, four years ago. Exactly. Uh, for the turn and, of the century. Uh, now, again, let, let's um, let, let me just ask one or two questions to that part, and then we'll get into some of the other not crazy numbers which you which you which I have here. So, how do you pay that? Is it all one one time? Here's seven hundred fifty million. Give me the the key, or you pay that over a period of time, or how does that work? Just out of curiosity. It was interesting, and, and so uh, we got to negotiate the terms, and so paid it over four years in tranches, 150 million bucks up front, and then it was tranches of, I think, 200 and 200, okay. and then the, the last, like, 50 or 100, I forget the exact. The funny thing was, actually, the last night we were in Atlanta with all the owners to finish up the deal, we had to pay them 50 million bucks. And um, so it was really odd. We were sitting there in Bob's suite, and he was just taking a shower and telling off. He'd just come out in a towel and the doorbell of the suite rings and we open the door and there's this beautiful woman standing there in, in a, you know, very professional suit, but you know, six foot tall, blonde, gorgeous woman. And, and I went, can I help you? She goes, uh, I need to speak to Bob McNair. And I'm like, what is going on here? Jesus, did I you know, get caught in something here or what? And, and, and I go, uh, can I tell him what it's about? He's just getting out of the shower. <laughs> and she goes, no, I can only speak with him. It was really weird. Well, and then finally I looked out and there's these two other big guys with this briefcase. And I go, uh, okay, hang on a minute. Let me go get him. I get him. He gets dressed and he comes out. But she was carrying with these two guys where they were carrying in, this, in, this, in a suitcase a $50 million cashier's check. Wow. That they, that they had a hand over it, he had a sign for it, and they had to take a picture of it. 
because he was going to walk down that night and hand it to the NFL owners. Right. And so, and she, you know, she couldn't let on that that's who she was. She could only talk to Bob. That's, that was really yeah. kind of a weird <laughs> experience. I understand that the, the awkwardness there. Um, now, interesting. Now, how does it then get next step? Um, so you pay how fast or how long does it take to then build the team or when is your first season after that is it like right the next year or how do you normally how does it work we got it in 99 and our first year was 2001 okay so then then we were off to the races and so literally we had to you know create a business i mean we didn't have any staff right. like the next day after we got the franchise and we flew back and i had a stack of resumes five feet high on, on my desk and It's actually interesting that we wound up working together and starting a company with Buffy Philippel out of Cleveland called Teamwork Online so that we could take resumes uh, online. Nobody ever done that at right. that point in time right. and have it have it segregated because, you know, I looked at this stack, went, Buffy, I need an accountant. Like, I don't know where an accountant is in, in this, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of pieces of paper I got here. Right. I need you to create something that People can apply online and we can vet them and interview them and select them because we had no staff. Right. We had instantly right. created staff. And so then, yeah, we had to finish up the documents for the financing for the building, get the building under construction, get the construction done, you know, create a business. We had a business plan, had to hire all the staff. I did all that and um, and start selling. And so we had like 30,000 people on the waiting list. We used Ticketmaster to take reservations. And then we had to go sell all the suites and the club seats and the naming rights, and you know, which, which created the first investment grade rated sports franchise in North America. Because, you know, as you saw, we had like over $450 million worth of contractually obligated income. Yeah, uh, exactly. COI, which is one of my favorite words in our industry, um, and, uh, and and again, let, let's put some numbers out here. So first of all, you uh, the uh, the naming rights deal, this Reliant Energy, was for three hundred million dollars for thirty years. Uh, you know, just huge number, and obviously also the length of it is is just unbelievable. Uh, we yeah. got. $230 million worth of sweet sales, um, $130 million worth of club seats, and so on. Now, let's just, you know, again, have a quick look at that. So you're the Reliant Energy deal, um, you know, $300 million for 30 years. I mean, that is just an insanely long deal. And, of course, at that time, you know, again, we're talking about, you know, whatever is now, 2000, right, the year 2000 or 2001 or whatever when you negotiate this year. You know, that's a, that's a huge amount of money uh, for this. So uh, was it all about, you know, the NFL coming to town and it just being such a big thing and a, such an important thing that, that the money wishes there and, and people were throwing at it? Or was it a lot of convincing uh, to do? No, it, it took work. There certainly was enthusiasm in the in the corporate uh, community, but we hired a number of consultants to work on it, value it, be able to create a package, go out and meet with corporate folks, and justify a valuation. When it came right down to it, two of the biggest uh, energy companies in town, uh, Dynagy and and Reliant, were. Uh, the finalists, and um, the last meeting was in Bob's conference room, and at the very end, you know, he told both of them in two separate meetings, well, we're close, but 
you know, I need another 12 million bucks and I need it on the front end of the deal. <laughs> and and one company said yes and one company said no and and uh, you know Reliance said yes and and we had the largest naming rights deal at that time you know uh, in the history of the planet yeah. and so, uh, and, it, and you know from the look of it, it still runs now right I think the company's called now yeah. NRG right so it is still the NRG Stadium or correct right yep. still still yeah, yeah. that's the that's the uh, parent company now. Amazing, amazing. Well, I, you know, I guess that helps having you know big oil companies or energy companies in in the neighborhood. Uh, I mean, again, it, at that time, how local are deals versus you know they become regional or or you know you know companies who are who are looking at you know getting involved are really from the neighborhood, so to speak, or from the city and 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 Texas um, versus you know. Taking it as a as a global or or, or nationwide sort of uh, opportunity. Yeah, you know, some were local of our of our largest sponsors, um, but certainly companies like Ford and Miller and others were you know Continental was headquartered there at the time, but you know large major airline, you know were major corporations, um, and all of them you know have sophisticated sponsorship and and. Uh, and agencies that they work with, and and so did we. And uh, you know, you, you're not going to get to those kind of revenues unless you can justify them for the for the client and the agency. And you're not going to keep those kind of revenues unless you can deliver for them. Absolutely. And so the Texans were a great platform. Um, we delivered for our sponsors, be they local, regional, or national. You know, and, and a significant part of the national, the local and regional appeal certainly was having the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo in the building. It's a busy building. You do a lot of events. It's got a roof on it. Uh, we knew we were getting a Super Bowl. We knew we would get NCAA Final Fours. So, you know, we've had two Super Bowls there already. We've had three NCAA Final Fours. We've had uh, three NCAA Regionals, you know, major soccer events. Uh, you you were involved in something that was called the Super Bowl Bill in Texas. I, I saw yeah. that here, right? So, uh, so you helped basically create something which allowed um, the government to fund some of this, or, or they say the Texas government. Is that yeah. sort of what happened? Basically, the way the bill was set up was that you would benchmark the sales tax, hotel tax, rent-a-car tax, and liquor tax in Harris County, which is where Houston is, and the five surrounding counties from the previous year and uh, from the week before to the week after the Super Bowl. And then you would see what the collections were after the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And the difference mm -hmm. we were able to uh, put into the Super Bowl event and half could go into the event and half could go into the facility. And the best part about the legislation was that the state treasurer would um, estimate what the bump would be and give us 50% of that up front. So uh, we would do an economic uh, impact study and go, we think it's going to be about this much. So they were not overly exposed, uh, but yet it gave us money to fund uh, the Super Bowl and uh, improvements to the facility, which so is made Texas. Super Bowl, what, which was it, 38 or? 38 for yeah, us, yeah. yeah. Correct. So what, what year is that? Just a rough idea, 2000. Uh, 2003? Three, right. It, it, was, it was the year of Janet Jackson's breast. 
Oh, right. Um, okay. That one is uh, what most people would remember it for. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Right. Uh, Interesting. Now, uh, give me a quick idea, uh, because you, you called it acquired Super Bowl. So that means you always have to pay to have the Super Bowl in town. Um, it's not the NFL just says, look, we're coming and so on. Right? So you're paying a license fee to host it, and therefore you keep the revenue west in terms of what, ticket revenues, or how does it sort of roughly work? So, you 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 have a bid committee that uh, has um, corporate, the corporate community, the political community, um, the team, philanthropic parts of it, and you bid against other cities, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the NFL owners pick where they want to go. Okay. And generally, um, if a if a city builds a new building, they'll get you one. They'll give you one to help the community sort of offset the investment that it makes in the in the stadium. Okay. But you know, you got to perform really well if you're going to get multiple events. And Houston is a great event town, it's a big city, the facilities are great, it's really easy to operate there. You know, it's like one one thing that that differentiates Houston for instance from other venues because of our partnership with the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. They have a complete studio built just across the parking lot from from the stadium and they've spent tens of millions of dollars building it out and rebuilding it out every few years when it gets obsolete so if you're the television broadcaster for that super bowl you don't need to bring control room trucks you don't need to bring camera trucks yep. it's much cheaper to to operate because you just go over to the rodeos offices and walk in and go oh my god this is the same as what we have at ABC in New York or ESPN in, in Bristol. And uh, and so all these kind of things and, and what you're going to do with the philanthropic uh, efforts around the game, what you're going to do to activate the game, you know, what the hotel block looks like, what the other events are going to be around it, all goes into the bid. And it's a multi-year process and, you know, it takes millions of bucks. And But because of the Super Bowl legislation, Texas has a one-up on other states because they have the ability to capture the excess taxes generated by the event and direct it into the event. So right. it doesn't cost the state of Texas anything. Right. Um, it's it's the it's the vest out of their sleeves. Yeah, makes total sense. I, I love it. Uh, and, and if if this was all you would have done, um, that would have been already an amazing career. But we're just about halfway through. <laughs> So there's, stay tuned, folks. There's a lot more to come here. Um, so we're in the year 2003, roughly now. Um, you know, and somehow the NBA kept calling again, and and you still obviously moving from something really successful and exciting, what you're doing there in Houston, to Portland, Oregon. So just talk a bit about that switch over uh, from the NFL back to the NBA. Yeah, Paul Allen uh, owned the Seattle Seahawks and the uh, Portland Trailblazers and, you know, related companies. And he was doing a search. He wanted to replace the leadership in both those teams. And so he asked to talk to me. I was recruited there. I had a headhunter call me. And um, it was an interesting process uh, because what it came down to is I, I could have gone to either franchise. Mm-hmm. But the other guy that they were talking to was Todd Lewicki, who I think is, you know, the best brand manager and, and revenue generator in, in professional sports. It has been. He's a good friend. 
uh, and has been for years. And so I knew that, you know, because it's hard to keep secrets in this industry, particularly when they're talking to two friends. And so I flew up there to Portland and sat with Paul, or to Seattle and sat with Paul. And I just looked across the desk at him. I said, look, you know, which one of these two franchises do you love? They said, oh, by far, Portland. I, I bought the Seahawks because otherwise they were going to move to Los Angeles. And I thought it would have been bad for the city. I said, okay. I said, you know what your problem is in Seattle? And he says, no. I said, your problem is only one thing. It's revenue generation. You know, we, we built the building in our town the same year you built one in your town. The cities are not that much different in terms of their size. Houston's got a bigger corporate community, but you got some exciting companies here and Seattle's booming. You need a guy who's going to fix your revenue problem. And I know who you're talking to, and Todd's the best guy for that. You have legal problems, political problems, operating problems, basketball problems in Portland, and you tell me you love that franchise more than the other. So if you want, I'll step aside on the Seahawks and go fix your problem in, in Portland. He said, you would? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go do that. Because actually my skill set fits better mm. uh, with what you need done there. Nice. And Todd's fits better with what you need in Seattle. And uh, so that's what we did. And, uh, you know, it was a, he threw a lot of money at me in a long-term contract. And it was an opportunity to, to run not only the franchise, and but two buildings, uh, half a dozen radio stations, a food service company, a uh, number of other entities that we decided to sell. Uh, but, you know, it was a, it was a broad-based opportunity to continue to learn and grow. And so, and my skill set fitted better. Yeah. yeah. So, no, so that's well, yeah, great. It makes a lot of sense. And, and if I got it correctly, Tot came after you and, and Houston as well, right? Uh, he was the GM then when you left there, right? He, he, he yeah. Well, I, I made it 90 days with Les Alexander. He only made it 30 days with Les Alexander. Oh, right. Okay. Because I saw he was he was listed as the GM for the championship team. That's how I found it when I was doing my homework on that. But uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, now, again, let's talk a bit about Portland uh, for a bit, um, you know, and the four years you spend there. Um, again, some numbers here, 10-year, $182 million cable TV deal. So, again, uh, I'm assuming that is for that 10-year period, so let's say $18 million a year, yeah. already, you know, significantly more than what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about the Rockets. Um, you guys acquired the Rose Garden Arena, uh, which means the team had its own home. And another number which kind of stuck out here was you know, improved EBITDA to over 100 million in four years. So these are all now we're talking much bigger numbers than earlier when we're in the sort of 80s uh, with the Houston. So um, where was, you know, again, just let's compare a little bit, not so the teams from a playing point of view, but more from an, you know, commercial point of view. What, what is it, the big difference you saw now where we, you know, we're in the early 2000s versus, you know, something you were doing, you know, 10, 15 years before? Well, certainly um, the size of the building, right? It was a 16,000 seat building with 20 suites in Houston, and it was uh, no club space. You had a 20,000 seat arena with, you know, 75 suites and uh, a couple of 3,000 club seats. You know, so the money you could generate in the building was considerably larger. Right, right, okay. uh, you know, we controlled the food service, we controlled the merchandise. You know, the, the cable deal really was one of, we were next to last 
in cable revenues. Um, when I got there, Charlotte was the only deal it was worth worse. You know, both of those were a function of people being convinced they knew how to build uh, regional cable networks who didn't mm -hmm. and paid, paid a severe price for it. So I was able to negotiate a deal and to get Comcast to come into the marketplace against the other regional player, uh, Fox now. Right. And at the same time, the Seattle Sonics were making noise about moving. And so I was able to negotiate a deal that said, oh, by the way, if the Sonics leave, you have to broadcast our our games in the Seattle market. So when you combine the Portland and Seattle markets, television markets, now all of a sudden you're sitting in the top seven markets in the United States. And that's part of the reason that the Seattle Mariners had been uh, successful for years uh, financially right. from that perspective. Because uh, those combined markets are, are worth a lot more than Portland, which was the 24th media market um, at the time. So we went from, you know, next to last in the league to sixth in the league, you know, which was a major jump in in helping turn around the finances uh, at the Rose Garden yeah. um, and, and for, for the for the Trailblazers. Yeah, I mean, the, the year before I got there, the team lost $135 million. Wow. And uh, the day I got there. $135 million in one, that's their loss per, in one year. Yeah, real real cash. Yeah, okay. not not depreciation and amortization or anything. Real cash. Wow. Wow. And uh, and so you know, were it not for a guy like Paul Allen who was that wealthy, yep. that team would have been bankrupt. Yeah. And the building with it. The first day I got there, I had breakfast with the Chamber of Commerce, and I got to the office of you know a little bit after nine, and Joel Lippin, who was the league's lawyer, was on the phone. Uh, when I walked in and he started screaming at me, you know, he, he was trained by David Stern. So he had to <laughs> drop F-bombs and F-bombs left and right. And I finally got him to calm down. I said, Joel, what are you screaming about? He said, you didn't pay the luxury tax. So what are you talking about? He goes, you guys owe us $52 million in luxury tax. And it was due at noon today, Eastern time. It's now 1215 and you haven't paid us. And if you don't, we're going to take the franchise away from you. And I had to go, Joel, this is my first day on the job. I just finished having breakfast with all the city fathers. You're the first guy I've talked to. We don't have a CFO here. They fired him six months ago. And you want me to write you a $52 million check? And I, I still have a copy of the check up on, my, on, the, on the invoice up on the wall. And I said, you know, like, you need to send me an invoice. And he said, we don't do invoices at the NBA. I said, Joel, do you, do you want your 52 million bucks or not? He goes, how am I going to give you an invoice? I said, I don't know. That's not my problem. That's your problem. But somebody's got to be able to type up an invoice and send it to me because I got to tell you, it's my first day on the job. And if I call Paul Allen up in Seattle and go, hey, boss, I need 52 million bucks today. I'm not probably going to get a really good reception. You know, and so. And so he goes, okay, okay, I got it. I'll send you an invoice. So they sent me a couple hours later, they send me an invoice. And I have to hunt Paul down, and he's at the Cannes Film Festival on his yacht on a party at night, oh, right? Nice. He's on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. So I call him up and walk him through this. And he goes, well, how much is it? And I go, well, they want the money today. I told him I couldn't get it today, but that I would call you. He goes, well, how much is it? 
I said, it's 52 million bucks. And he goes, oh, and he went silent. And, you know, I was afraid the guy had a heart attack. <laughs> so they, it's like, Paul, Paul, like, and he didn't answer for like a couple minutes. Right. Finally, he answered and he said, so, all right, send it up to the CFO in Seattle at Vulcan and, uh, and I'll take care of it. It might take a day or two. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll call them back and tell them they'll get their money. <laughs> so I called the league and said, just sit tight. I mean, and they go, well, this is Paul Allen. I said, I know it's Paul Allen. He's in Cannes at the film festival. And for Christ's sake, he's not walking around with a, you know, credit card that, you know, you can put 52 million bucks on, you know, give me 48 hours. I'll get you your money. Right. And so sure enough, like the next day I got a FedEx check down to me and it said house account. So I don't know, I guess Paul kept 52 million bucks in his house account. Uh, and I sent it off to the NBA now, to pay what the What was that tax for? I mean, I'm not sure I understood it. What, what, are they, what was so, the fee for? Yeah, the, 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 league, the way the league salary cap is structured, you can only spend so much on players. And I think at the time it was about $70 million per team. Okay. And for every dollar you were over, $70 million bucks, you had to pay a dollar-for-dollar dollar tax oh, to man. the league which then they redistributed to the teams that were under the cap. Got it. And yeah. so uh, our payroll was 132 million bucks. And it was 70, the two highest payrolls right. were New York, yeah. New York Knicks and uh, Portland Trailblazers. Okay. So that 50, it was only there for one season then the, the, because of the extra, the, the amount you were over the, the cap. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. That, that was part of, that was part of the 135 we lost yeah. that year. Ouch. All right. Okay. So how did you then turn this thing around? Um, obviously, you, you you reshaped the roster, right? I think you, you made a reductions in, in salaries, et cetera. Um, yeah. You know, so this was all part of, I guess, your, then the next few years, uh, rebuilding the team. Yeah. I mean, we had to restructure the business. We, you know, we laid off 88 people, you know, which didn't make the people of Portland very happy. I remember meeting with the mayor and first words out of her mouth was, uh, well, Mr. Patterson, other than put 90 good Portlanders out of work, what else have you done since you've been here? <laughs> like, um, nice. Uh, you know, we, we sold off some businesses that were money losing. We redid the cable deal. We redid the TV deal. We got the radio. We combined a lot of the back of the house with the radio station, got it out of the black, you know, out of the red and into the black. And that helped get the, the team into the black. And, you know, so it's really a, you know, people want to think there's one magic wand to these kind of situations, turnaround situations, and they're not. Mm -hmm. It's really the accumulation mm -hmm. of nickels and dimes, you know, that get you there. And so bit by bit, over four years or so, yeah, some of it was player payroll, some of it was not paying the tax. Um, you know, we, we, we got there. And uh, so uh, it wasn't an easy period. Uh, you don't make a lot of friends laying off 88 people and cutting budgets and selling off companies, but it's what we needed to do to keep the, the franchise viable. And, you know, we put the arena into bankruptcy. We tried to settle with the bondholders. They, uh, they wouldn't work with us. So we stuck it into bankruptcy and wound up uh, forcing them to fix the building up according to our specs and then uh, bought it back at a severe discount. So, but, but yeah, these are some tough lessons, I'm sure, and, and tough measures you had to take to, uh, to, to get this, to turn this thing around, right? Um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't make a lot of friends, and uh, 
you know, those are the kind of situations where being known in the community is not a lot of fun. Yep, yep. It's uh, it's a little different than what you were doing in Houston, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. Really, yeah, great. I love it. Now let's let's talk about your. You know, you've you've obviously always played. You know, you know, in, in the last roles we've been talking about very senior roles. Um, you know, from the president or general manager, all these titles you have. But um, you know, and you were let's call it an entrepreneur, right? Uh, an entrepreneur who was working within an organization, yeah. working for you know uh, billionaires, etc. Um, now, from what I can see, you then finally decided you want to be an entrepreneur, uh, and you started your own company, Pro Sports Consulting. How did that lead to it, and, and you know what we were then doing for the next few years? Well, you know, a lot of folks needed help with some of the things that we've been talking about, and I, over this period of my career, um, you know, twenty years or so, had acquired a lot of different skills. I mean, I'm an attorney, but. You know, got to got to know media and naming rights and facilities and whatnot. Absolutely. Um, you know, so there were people in the community or in the Northwest that needed help with that. Whether it's uh, the Gorge Games, they did a media rights deal for them, or whether it's Providence Health that wanted to buy naming rights with the soccer team, or you know, whether it was the Tacoma Rainiers in the city of Tacoma that wanted to build a new AAA baseball park and. And, you know, then owners that needed help with acquisitions or sales, people that were trying to redo buildings or build new buildings and find financing for them. So, you know, it was uh, it was uh, interesting and a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm sort of better in in uh, in uh, short to medium range spaces than being sort of sitting around for a long time, just managing things and not upsetting the apple cart. Right. And uh and, you know, one of them actually wound up being a project for Arizona State, which had the money losingest uh, athletic department in all of college sports. Wow. And so and also had facilities that were in really bad shape because they didn't have any money. Right. And so I did a project for them to help them get that turned around. And, and Mike Pro, who was the president uh, of the company, of the school, asked me to come down and visit with him and said, you know, we need somebody to to do all this that you told us we should do in this report you wrote. And I said, well, that's great. You know, I can I can help you find somebody to do that if you like. And he goes, well, that's not what I had in mind. I said, oh, really? Well, so what did you have in mind? He goes, we want you to do it. And I said, oh, I didn't realize that was the conversation today. <laughs> and he says, well, what do you want for it? I said, well, I haven't even thought about it. He goes, well, I want you to go back to Portland and uh, tell me what you want. And I said, okay, well, let me, I mean, I got to talk to my wife because you want me to move here, right? Yeah, yeah, we want you to move here and take over. Uh, oh, uh, okay. So he says, you know, send us something tomorrow. <laughs> I said, okay. So I flew home and sat down with my wife and a bottle of wine. And, uh, you know, we put all kinds of outrageous things that we thought they never would agree to so we could just, you know, say thanks and part as friends and send him an email the next morning. And Michael Crow, the president here is, you know, very well known for uh, brief, curt emails. And he sent me back a one word email. Done. Wow. wow. <laughs> uh, That's a good word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so so like, wait, so I didn't when think you're ever going to you know, so read all this stuff. So when you started uh, Pro Sports Consulting, you were still in Portland then at the beginning of the time yes. after you finished yes. with the Blazers, right? Okay. Yeah, but you know, I did projects all over the all over the. I mean, I did right. 
remember there one one project in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where we figured out that the the county judge's nephew who was running the building was stealing the building blind and you know the, the town is kind of known as being a center of the mafia how and, old were uh, you just when when you started let's say the on that entrepreneurial journey here what, what was so roughly your age uh, i guess i was let's see 50. But, okay right so yeah so they're uh, you know Again, you know, some people always think, you know, entrepreneurs are always whatever in their 20s or 30s, you know. So in your case here, you know, you, you, you took your time and, and now you you did, you know, at least for several years until, I guess, this sort of particular project, which we just talked about with Arizona State University, then came along. Um, you were doing different projects. Uh, I love it. Now, well, and, you know, and I, and I had started companies when, you know, certainly the Arrows and the Arena Operating Company. I mean, I was... I'm the guy that put those deals together, and right. I was a partner, a partner in those, and Correct. and also worked there. And you know, and then Bob's football startup was, you know, a startup. Yeah, I didn't own it. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's what I mean. You, you did play. Obviously, you were you were part owners and certain things already earlier. Um, but yeah. here you're running your consulting business, which is again, it, it's a bit different, right? Um, now let's yeah. uh, you know let, let's talk a bit about those two stops, which then you know what I can see here: uh, first Arizona State University, and then you went actually back to your alma mater, University of Texas, uh, as the yeah. athletic director. So, you know, again, very different jobs, I guess, in a sense, and different levels of it, right? You said uh, on one side, ASU were you know whatever the worst performing um, athletic department, but you guys did a bunch of really good things. Again, I can see something here with you know 100. 20 million fundraisers and you know acquiring teams and so and renovating uh, not teams of the venues etc for the university um, and again I think that's something similar you ended up doing there with Texas uh, with the UT with UT later on as well right um, yeah what, what's the big difference between you know all the pro sports stuff you did and then you're getting into let's call it college and amateur sport yeah. right yeah, just, just compare yeah. that a bit I think that as an administrator, um, I think one of the benefits of being in the pro sports space is really, for the most part, you got one owner to be accountable to, and you know he may have his whims, right, and 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 feelings about something, but that's all you got to do. Is, you know, long ago when I was working for my father, you know, I, I asked him, well, what what is the key to the business? Is he says you got to win some games, you got to make some money, and you got to make the owner look good. Right. It's real simple. Those three things. Okay. And that's really pretty much true in, in, pro the, sports, right. in pro sports. Yeah. In the college space, particularly for large public universities, right, that are funded partially, partially used to be majority, but no longer is the case, that are funded partially by the state, hmm. um, you have far many more constituent groups that you have to keep happy. Mm. You know, those could be the state legislature, those could be the governor, those could be the board of regents, you know, the president of the school, the faculty has a, a say in how athletics are run. You've got students uh, on the main campus, student athletes that you have. You got to make sure that the student athletes are uh, fulfilling their academic obligations, which certainly is nothing you have to worry about in the pros. Yeah. You've got far more student athletes, you know, 500, 600, 800, depending on the size of the school's athletic department, you know, male and female, uh, you know, 17 to 24 years old, you know, with all the issues that come with leaving home. <laughs> and, home and, uh, 
yeah, being in hormones, being away from home and depression and mental health issues and eating disorders and, you know, injuries and, you know, keeping the legislature happy and yeah, keeping the donors happy. With different like, stakeholders know, so with different agendas, right? Yeah. You know, so it's far more difficult and, you know, so many different teams. So, you know, the season is so much longer because you've got at a minimum 16 teams and some schools have up to 32 teams. So there's a game or multiple games, you know, every night. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the spring, I go to the tennis match for a little bit, walk over to the softball field and you know, we had really good softball team. So they have the run rule in softball, which means after five innings, if you're up by seven runs, they call the game off. So, you know, we, we were pretty good at run ruling people. So we had really good teams. So, you know, you could watch a bit of that and the game would be over. You could watch over, go to the baseball game and, you know, they'd come back and, you know, watch the last of track and field or something. Let's talk a bit about uh, UT here. Um, you know, again, I love the numbers here, which are, you know, so it's the the largest at that time. And I'm sure that maybe it still is uh, athletic department with a budget of $180 million with three, over 300 staff, 500 students, et cetera. Now, again, I'm just looking at that number. I have to admit, I, you know, I went to TCU at Texas Christian University, which is a you know small private school. I have no idea what their budget is uh, for their for their for their teams, but 180 million dollars looks large in any level. Um, you know, talk us through this. I mean, what what does that money spend on, and you know, how do they make the money back? Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. the The university state law says that you can't. No private enterprise can make any money off of a a public facility. So the numbers are a little deceiving at Texas because the school owns the arena on campus mm -hmm. and therefore had and to not have the promoters who uh, of the concerts make make all the money and I'm you know, imagining air quotes here uh, out of the arena. The school, meaning the athletic department, which is actually a separate uh, affiliate of the university, it's not really legally part of the university the way the English department is, this the athletic department has to be a co-promoter in all of the events. All right. So the ticket revenue that generally goes, you know, 90 plus percent to the promoter and the band right. uh, actually flows through, through the, the athletic department's right. uh, budget. So, you know, that'll push it up 15, 20 million bucks a year. You know, so if you took that out, it'd still be in the top four or five, but, um, but it was a big Texas ego thing to say you always had the largest. So, mm. you know, I was, after mm. I got there, I wasn't going to say, well, guys, we're really fourth. Um, <laughs> that doesn't sell in Texas too well. Um, <laughs> right. You know, the other thing that's interesting about the Texas budget is everything was built with debt. And so you had large suite revenues, large club seat revenues, for football, basketball, baseball, but they were largely dedicated to debt service. I mean, our debt service, I think, was 25, 27 million bucks a year mm -hmm. that paid for the facilities that were built. So uh, that's where a considerable chunk of the, of the money went. And then, you know, we just spent a lot of money on staff and facilities and, and, and uh, benefits for student athletes. You know, we, we were one of the schools that you know, if, if you got to the end of your four years and, you know, you got out and went and played football for a couple of years and wanted to come back and finish, you know, we would 
pay your tuition to come back and finish. Mm. You know, we paid everybody's medical expenses. You know, there's things that were built into our budget that, you know, might not have been built into some other school's budget. But, you know, <clears throat> before I got there, um, the teams had all performed very well. It started sliding a couple, three years before I got there. And so while the expense line kept going up, the revenue line flatlined for about three years. Basketball went down about 15% over those three years. Baseball went down about 10%. Football flatlined, which is where all the money really comes from. Yep. But the revenue line, I mean, the expense line, excuse me, kept going up. And so right as I got there and the lost odds left, those two lines crossed. And so for the first time, they really had never had a budget. And they never hit because they'd always made so much money. They would kind of like just take all the money in and then worry make sure they later. spent most of it <laughs> and worry about it later. And you know, if they had an overage, it went to into reserves. Well, that year the line crossed and it was going to be a $15 million loss, hmm. which in my mind was unacceptable. You know, so you start looking at how do you cut the budget and generate more revenues. And we got the loss in the last half of the year. Uh, down to seven million bucks, and then the next year we got it back in the black. You know, again, that doesn't make people happy when you say, you know, sorry, you're, you know, you're not going to get to spend as much on recruiting, or sorry, you know, the three band directors instead of one band director don't get to go out and buy three three hundred dollar bottles of wine the night before the game. You know, they get to buy their own dinner. You know, there's a lot of sort of cleanup that had to happen. Well, we got it turned around, got it back in the black, and it's, you know, been very successful since. Yeah, I love it. Now let's let's talk a bit about this the new rule uh, which exists there. I'd love your your quick thought on that. Uh, where obviously student athletes are now allowed to uh, make a living, so to speak, right? to earn earn uh, income through sponsorships and and other things. Um, obviously that. You know that's fairly new, um, and you know, you know, and but you've obviously dealt now for several years with with universities. What 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 is your point of view on this? Um, do you think it's a good well, thing? Uh, yeah. Which is the what's your view on it? I think it depends on the sport. I, I think that the universities and the conferences got in this position because they did a lousy job of communicating. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, if you're a student athlete, like a football player, men's basketball player women's basketball player on a full scholarship, the compensation you're getting is equivalent to being in the top 15% of household incomes in the United States, and it's tax-free. So, you know, your room and board, cash that you get, equipment that you get, um, tuition that you get, counseling that you get, puts you in the equivalent of, you know, let's call it 75 to 90,000 bucks a year. Um, and you don't pay any taxes on that. So it's really the equivalent of, let's call it 115,000 bucks a year. 115,000 bucks a year is pretty damn good, no matter how you slice it. But the schools did such a lousy job of communicating that, they let the agents and the press drive the messaging around that. And so now you have a situation with name, image, and likeness where, you know, I think it's one thing if you're on say the UCLA women's gymnastics team and you have half a million followers, you know, should you be able to monetize that to a level in line with other people, other social media influencers that have a half a million of followers? Yeah, I think you probably should. But if NIL is really just 
a ruse and a way for donors to shovel cash to certain athletes, you know, then all you've done is really legalize what used to be cheating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it raises a host of issues. So what happens when the football coach decides that the quarterback that a bunch of boosters gave a million bucks to really can't play? He's really not that good. So he's not going to start this weekend. You know, or the basketball player, you know, shoots a lousy percentage, so he's not going to get as many shots and and uh, make the boosters happy and see him play a lot of minutes. And all of a sudden, those boosters are telling the coach, well, you need to play my guy, you know, because I put up a million bucks to to uh, get him there to your right. school. Right, and, right. and if you don't, I'm not going to write any more checks. You know, this whole scenario is fraught with a lot of uh, issues. And, you know, when I was in Texas, I kept warning people that, you know, look, I don't think you want to go down this path. And, oh, by the way, if you decide to, you know, I think I know who's going to win the nuclear arms race. And it certainly is in Texas. I mean, they spend 300,000 bucks a weekend on parties for recruits for football. Right. You know, I just, I don't know how healthy that is. You know, the reality is it's very tough to evaluate talent and whether they will be successful over the three, four years they spend. I think it's probably good that the NBA is going back to letting basketball student athletes come out of high school and go into the NBA instead of having them sit out for a year and be a one and done. I think the baseball model is the best. You can either go out after your high school year, or if you go to college, you got to stay three years. You know, that way you have people that really are interested in being students versus people that want to go in the minor leagues. Um, You know, but you're probably going to need federal legislation to have a level playing field between the various schools. Mm. Interesting. Uh, I mean, obviously, I, I I read about it and and you know whatever you can sort of and, and the diff the, you know obviously the opposing views on it and, and, and my view always was like okay, like I said, I mean the athletes don't get paid. Maybe they they have a you know other financial benefits by being a student athlete, but uh, at the end of the day, there there aren't you know some of them will never make it to the pros, which means you know there is income streams there help generate for the university or for the NCAA in general at large, you know, with multi-billion-dollar TV contracts, et cetera, which we all know exist. Um, why not make some money or let them make some money with that? That's obviously an easier, simple way to look at it. Uh, but as you just explained, yeah. there's obviously a lot more. It's a lot more complex, and 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 there are, you know, whatever I guess uh, problems with it, potential challenges with it. Yeah, I mean, but the reality is they do get paid. I mean, if if you're if you're taking a home. $70,000, a year, tax-free, you're getting paid. Right. Nobody likes to say that, but they are. And the reality is, even though there's all this money sloshing around in the system, there really are less than a dozen schools that break even or make money mm-hmm. in their athletic mm-hmm. departments. Right. Every other athletic department in the country is subsidized. It's subsidizing it, right. Okay. By, by basically, you know, student tuition, student fees, things like that. Right. Yeah, and it works. I mean, look, I'll take my own alma mater here at TCU. I don't think anyone knew who the heck they were until we started winning football games. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, you, yeah. Know, you, you know what I mean, right? I mean, we know we had Patterson yeah. there, your namesake, and he did an yeah. unbelievable job uh, for many years. Now he's with UT, funny enough. <laughs> a little right. uh, yeah. segment there. Um, but, you know, if I when I said TCU 20 years ago, it's like, what are you talking about now? Everyone I talk in the U.S., they'll know the university. And it's purely because we ended up playing, you know, decent football and, and made some, you know, bowl games, et cetera. And, how people know it it's you know so it does yeah. work i think yeah. on many levels yeah it, it does and you know i mean the, the attention to the school is a positive the difficult thing for the public schools and you know the private schools they can decide what they want to do right it's a private enterprise and they charge what they want for tuition the tough thing for the public schools is you've got conservative republicans cutting the support for the public universities forcing the schools not to be able to raise tuition and then saying, but we want a successful football team and athletic department on the other side. Well, how are you supposed to pay for it, right? I mean, the reality is, is the, the finances don't work that well uh, for the vast, vast, vast majority of the schools. And it is a system that has worked well for the Olympics, for the university athletic departments, and for the most part, for the student athletes. And there's a significant amount of misrepresentation about what's going on. You know, I remember people saying, well, you know, how many T-shirts did do you sell Johnny Manziel at Texas A&M? Well, the reality is, is the schools don't use that name. And so you may sell a blank and somebody can put a number on it. You put a number on it, you know, you put Lure on it, you put Patterson on it, you put Manziel on it. Uh, but the school doesn't get any more money for whatever letters somebody stitches on the back of the jersey. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it, it's interesting to compare as at the, the pro side of it, which we, we talked about, you know, in... in Depth and uh, and then the, you know the NCAA, which of course is a money making machine, right? And you you know recently there was another announcement of another huge uh, major TV deal, right, into the billions of dollars. And so you know it's, it is incredible to see uh, those sort of numbers. But like you said, uh, it maybe really only is a few handful of universities who know how to you know keep keep their nose above the water and the rest still runs it runs a loss with it which is it's not such a good thing yeah. but i guess it's, it shows there is something and, wrong with the system yeah and the ncaa really is the schools right yeah. and and you know the big schools there and the television viewership largely driven by the big schools i mean everybody likes a cinderella you know but how many of them really drive viewership absolutely um they help subsidize the smaller schools' athletic departments with the distributions that they get based on how well their schools perform uh, in the NCAA uh, tournaments. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now let's uh, sort of uh, we, we start getting to the bit of the finish line here um, with this with your amazing career, um, and you know there are a couple more stops here I want to I want to touch on, uh, and while we slowly wrapping it up, um, you spent another year with uh, the Arizona Coyotes. Uh, I think as Cedar president, um, I think at the time when the uh, when the, the franchise was up for sale, or or you helped uh, put it up there. Uh, just talk about that for a minute. Yeah, it wasn't supposed to be for sale when I went there. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, the owner, the owner, you know, as many owners do, get in trouble in their daytime business. Uh, All right. Okay. Andy owned um, uh, a hedge fund that invested in major mass torts, and he had three of them get reversed on appeal. And so he went from being pretty flush with cash to, oh my God, I'm in trouble. And uh, so, you know, we had to clean up the balance sheet 
uh, fixed up the building some, you know, put them in a position to sell it. It was interesting. We had a number of uh, folks that we thought we were going to get sold to. And, uh, you know, sometimes owners don't always do what's in their best financial interest because obviously ego is a big part of franchise ownership. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually it got sold. And, uh, you know, Alex Marlowe, the current owner, is trying to get a new building built in Tempe for the team, which if they get done, that'd be great for the fans. Well, interesting. Steve, you know, obviously we've just went through your amazing career here over over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, you know, now COVID has been uh, around the, uh, for for all of us the last couple of years. So, you know, what has been keeping you busy and, and some of the uh, the projects you're working on, uh, both within your pro sports consulting and, of course, uh, Legend Labs, which is, I think, one of the businesses you you're also started uh, in 2019. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm the co-chair of Legend Labs. We're uh, a branding and crisis communications consultancy. So we do things like when the West Coast Conference decided it wanted to rebrand itself to help it get more seats in the NCAA tournament. Uh, we help them get that done. We represent a number of golfers, uh, work with corporations uh, outside of that and work with a lot of universities like Florida. We did a lot of work with Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, when during COVID when people were focusing on them and their reports Uh, about COVID, for instance. Here it says yeah. protect their legends. What does that actually mean? We look at your brand as your legend. What do you, right. what do okay. you want your legend to be? And so Got it. we will help you develop it, create it, protect it, uh, you know, continue it because, you know, you, you got to tell your story right. And so, yeah. okay. you know, many, many companies and universities um, and individuals is, is where we spend a lot of time. Quidel is another client they did. Uh, they're one of the companies that did all the COVID testing for people. So we helped them with a lot of their messaging around uh, the rollout of their COVID testing. And the so SEC is a client, among others. You got Brooks Kopka here, Dustin Johnson, obviously, you know, big uh, golfers. Um, so you help them with their, let's call it branding of themselves, or is that sort of sure. what you Yeah, their branding of themselves, you know, what their what kind of logos they want to create for merchandise, what okay. kind of uh, websites they want to create, what kind of stories they want to tell, right. you know, how they want to deal with crises when they come up. So it's, it's a branding and crisis communications consultancy. On the Legend Lab side, uh, I've spent a good bit of time the last couple of years working mostly on the public side. I represented Prince George's County in, with, in their negotiations with the Washington Commanders NFL team. Uh, and we may or we may not get to a, a deal on a new stadium there. I've spent a lot of time with the city of Charlotte and the Charlotte Hornets working on a $215 million renovation of that <clears throat> arena, the Spectrum Center in, uh, in Charlotte and a new practice facility and a mixed-use development across the street from it. Um, we should hopefully finish up the documents here in the next couple of months and then sell bonds for that and be off to the races uh, in terms of uh, work on that facilities. And then I'm also a partner in CEO Coaching International. I coach a number of CEOs, uh, companies from two million up to several hundred million. We have about 55 partner coaches in the company and about 600 clients around the world. Wow. Well, uh, that's cool. Well, that must be an interesting one. I, again, you know, bringing all your expertise and experience over these decades here in uh, and now sharing it with other CEOs. And uh, it sounds like a fun yeah. thing to do. 
Yeah, yeah. That's something you should be doing. And this is exactly, you know, this is perfect finish also for a podcast. I think uh, I love the, the sharing you had here. You know, I think we both are privileged to be in this industry for, for you know, decades. You had a few more than me. Um, and thanks for sharing that, uh, these experiences, as well as the learnings on the back of it. Uh, this is why we do this. That's why I do this podcast to capture those things and, and have it there for generations in the future to learn from. So, uh, Steve, this was a lot of fun. Um, you know, we'll uh, we'll you know edit here and there a bit, but uh, this was an amazing almost two hours here together. And thank you for your time. Thank you, Marcus. Enjoyed doing it, and uh, hopefully, it's a, a benefit to uh, to your listeners. And uh, you know, good luck with everything out there. Look right. forward to hopefully seeing you again sometime soon. Definitely, uh, yeah. It was great to see you there in Vietnam, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. So, have thank a good you. good evening there in uh, Scottsdale. Thank you. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.